0: Gentle listener, and welcome to Michael and Ethan in a room with Scotch. I am your host, Michael Lilienthal, and this is my guest, Ethan Bartlett. This is the podcast where we talk about books, but we don't talk about Scotch, at least not normally. And we're also usually in a room with Scotch. This time around, we're in separate rooms. And I don't know what Ethan's drinking. I'm not actually drinking scotch.
1: Uh, uh, I also am not drinking scotch. I also am a little disturbed at the fact that you seem to feel the need to re-explain yet again how our specials work, considering we've done like 25 specials.
0: (laughs) I guess, yeah, you know, you're right. We don't need to go into all that that much.
1: unless Unless it is someone's first time.
0: That's true. That's true. And so Which we we do say you don't need to listen in order. So that's true. Somebody might just be diving in right yeah. here. Yeah. So really, maybe like the subject matter.
1: Maybe I'm the jerk here. You might be. Uh, that's a bit of um, Scrooge-like self-reflection that I personally try to avoid as much as possible. Uh,
0: but you know, it's a new year. It's a new you. And uh, well,
1: it's one of those things. <laughs>
0: I won't tell which. Um, and
1: by that I mean it's month thirteen of twenty twenty. Uh, <laughs> so
0: I was gonna. I was avoiding saying
1: that. <laughs> Listen, this podcast um, only has room for one person who will avoid making jokes based on memes I saw on Facebook that morning. <sighs>
0: We, we can't, uh, That that's a different podcast. We'll, we'll start that
1: one another time. Uh, It'll probably be more popular than this one, and all it will be is like the meme roundup.
0: The meme roundup. There you go. Oh, man. You wouldn't even need a co-host for that one. You just, you know, go online, go through your social media feed. Oh, I found a meme. Here's what it says. Here's the picture. Yeah, yeah. Okay, on to the next. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. that oh, sounds like gosh. such a terrible idea it's
1: wonderful it but it um, also sounds like an idea that would like get like like more downloads than this podcast it might and i'm saying that just. not as a good thing just as a fact
0: it's, it, yeah yeah it, there's there's no moral weight behind that <laughs> just it's a thing Anyway, that's not what this podcast is. We're talking about books. And actually, in this one, we're talking about a special sort of book and a specific book. Uh, We're talking about the comic book. Wait, uh, what is a
1: comic book?
0: A comic book. I'm not going into this. It's basically a meme, but a lot of them (laughs) strung together in pages.
1: Um. (laughs) I'm so mad at you for that. Uh, mostly for okay. how hard I laughed. Um, <laughs> thank you. Uh, yes. What comic book are you talking about, Michael?
0: It is Neil Gaiman's The Sandman, number nineteen, A Midsummer Night's Gre- Night's Dream, which is um, within the the larger volume of Dream Country. Is that uh, volume three? I think it is by the collected editions. Yeah,
1: and as far as I know, the collected editions have gone through different printings but they're all pretty uniform as far as volume numbering so Mm -hmm. um if you don't find this as a you know one issue comic it should be should be issue like the third chapter i think yes the third chapter of volume three of the 10 volume like original complete sandman
0: awesome Now, I do own that volume uh, of the Collected Editions, but uh, recently having moved, now I get to make the excuses that you made (laughs) previously, Ethan, I I couldn't find it. But I could find my single issue first edition of this issue. Very Um, nice. (laughs) Which it's almost a crime for me to be handling it and touching it and opening it, it being a first edition. But it is a first,
1: it's, it's like a first first edition.
0: Oh yes, absolutely. Wow. From uh, 19, September of 1990, Well number 19. Would you like to know how much it cost when it first came out?
1: Uh, uh a buck fifty. Ah, I was actually going to say a buck ninety-five. Nice. Um, yeah. No, I was. I also wanted to say uh, to the gentle listener that unfortunately you heard it here. Uh, Michael's fortune that he was going to make one day selling off this mint condition uh first edition of dream country it's we we now have documented evidence that uh that is not mint condition because michael's oily oily fingers have touched it Mm,
0: they're so oily and moist um (laughs) it's Uh,
1: it's not always that i hear something real time and think wow i'm gonna cut that out of the podcast
0: (laughs) yes it is Um. (laughs)
1: Yeah, and usually but I don't.
0: I'm just, I, I just want everyone to know the sacrifices I'm willing to make for this podcast. <laughs> that's, so. fair,
1: that's fair. Um, this doesn't get them to donate cool to the to Patreon. Also, pretty cool as Wifo. like a time
0: capsule. Like the the inside, the inside cover is advertising the movie Darkman. Um,
1: uh, I didn't see so. it. Show it back to the camera, so me and the gentle listener can see it. Oh, there,
0: there you go. There you go. Yes, take a look. Darkman, wow. the movie. Rated R. I have never uh, even
1: heard of that movie.
0: Uh I understand it's a cult classic. I haven't sure. ever seen it. Um yeah.
1: But yeah, no, that is that is sort of fun when you get like it's like I'm sure this was like all over you know, ads for this movie were all over TV and, and mm-hmm. maybe even in like some previews to VHS tapes. Uh oh probably. And and which is like a sentence I've said and lost us our entire uh, Generation Z following that we definitely had, but right. Um, it also
0: on the back uh, a- advertises a Lynx game system and oh points gosh. out how it's better than a Game Boy. <laughs> <laughs> so.
1: Yeah, that's uh, that's amazing. It's wonderful. Oh, okay, and and like. The headline for the gentle listener who um i know i fooled you michael but they can't see the visual aid you're you're giving them what yeah i know uh but the uh, headline was lynx eats boys lunch of, of this yes, advertisement yes. so "Links, was, Links uh, eats boys lunch in case anyone wondered how far back like edgy comic book uh advertisement strategies went, it's at least two what did you say 1990
0: 1990 yeah Sept- well, the publication date on it is September of 1990. Yeah. I'm not sure when comic books started releasing, like, two months prior to their publication date. Oh, yeah, that's a good so point. So, this might have come out in July, but...
1: <laughs> we must be precise know. in our anthropology. Right. Uh, very nice. Um, um, but that's
0: not... I mean, we're talking about the comic book, not the... the we're, we're talking about the and... comic
1: book, not the comic book. Not
0: the comic book, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, yes, this is in um, Neil Gaiman's uh, much-acclaimed run on The Sandman for uh, DC Comics and Vertigo.
1: Um, Uh, Yeah, uh, and we should mention, like, if you haven't read The Sandman, A, uh, correct that immediately, but B, mm -hmm. uh, for this episode, like, you can definitely, and I think this is part of why we chose this one, you can just read this issue uh, with no context and pretty absolutely. pretty basically understand everything that's that's happening mm-hmm. it's a little bit easier perhaps if you know like who some of the character of dream is i guess mainly but other than that it's like yeah. it, it works on its own okay.
0: it definitely does it, it refers to some things from earlier issues uh but uh it definitely does stand on its own and you can get everything you need to out of it
1: absolutely on its own yeah So, uh, I think this was actually your idea to, um, to do this issue of this comic as a special for Michael and Ethan. Uh, Right. So what, what about it, like, what made you want to, to do it?
0: It's, it's one of those things, and like, I know some facts about the publication of this, this book itself um you might know a little bit more than i do about the award that it won that was extremely controversial we, we can talk about that but um mostly what i wanted to explore about this was why it's so good okay <laughs> um <laughs> because it 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 strikes me uh, in a lot of ways as being extremely simplistic yeah um In its its structure, in its writing, Um, there's not too much plot in the book itself, at least that I can really detect. I mean, there's not really a story arc or or character arcs necessarily. There's like four or five of them started or hinted at
1: that never
0: culminate,
1: but... You could, yeah, you... I mean, mean, and I'm sure we'll get into what I mean here, so I don't want to say too much, but yeah, it, that assertion probably depends on what your definition of character arc is. Sure, yeah. Um. So yeah, but
0: that will make a difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because
1: uh, because there are a couple that I would argue that there are uh, okay. complete character arcs in this or um. Uh, you know, if, if you think of a character arc throughout a series as, like, a series of arcs rather than one single mm-hmm. arc, like, a, a small arc occurs, I think, for at least a couple of characters in the Sure. Um,
0: sure. Um, when, when considered also, and that's, like, kind of interesting when you think about that, these small arcs happening within the context of this larger arc. Yeah. Um, that makes it interesting to, to think about this in the context of the larger series, because, you know, just as much as you could read this issue on its own and get everything you need out of it, you could also take this issue out of the entire Sandman series and the series wouldn't necessarily change.
1: Um, there's one very important exception to sure. what you just said, uh, I think maybe we want might want to save that exception for the very end, though, just to uh, since we've made this promise that that we can you can understand what we're about to say without because yeah. Uh, yeah I we mean can,
0: we can tie that back in yeah
1: i right? I'm, I'm not that I'm uh would be sorry to do the entire series, but uh, that's like <laughs> right. that's a mondo book you know four part podcast at the very least
0: per um, per volume yeah
1: exactly. <laughs> I was going to say, if, if not just an entirely separate podcast.
0: Right, uh, right. But yes. That'll be our next spinoff. <laughs> um, yeah. No, um, yeah, and I know what you're talking about, and and I agree, but I also, you wouldn't, I, I'll save my comments on that for later. Sure, yeah, Um. Yeah. But just that um, this seems like a, a stop on, a a, a sideshow on the way through the rest of this um which is actually what this whole issue is in fact anyway the whole plot is just a stop and a sideshow on the way uh going forward yeah um
1: so it's it's interesting then at the same time that like i almost want to say um I think all four of uh, th- so there are four issues collected in this volume, and I want to say that all four of them uh, are consider like some of the most iconic issues from this seventy five issue run uh, mm. that was the original Sandman. That like all four of them are issues that people go back to continually. Um, mm-hmm. Just the, as far as influence and, and reference go. Um, and I don't think the two are mutually contradictory necessarily, but I, I think it's interesting that you're right. Like uh, with maybe that one exception, you could pull this issue out of the, you could make it a 74 issue run and not lose mm-hmm. very much, at least in terms of plot. Um, right. I guess plot mainly. Uh, Cause you'd, mm-hmm. I would argue you'd lose a lot in essentially every other Way. yes
0: absolutely there, there's so much richness in this uh that does give you insight into the character of the sandman um and also lead to the conclusion of that as well um sure that you would you would feel the loss if it weren't there um but plot wise it's not necessary yeah um which is that's that's what i think is is my question and my curiosity about all this is that Plot wise it's it's virtually meaningless, but it's so rich. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. And um, definitely. So something that just occurred to me, uh yeah. is that we never told the gentle listener what we were drinking. Oh
0: hey, yeah. What are you drinking, Ethan?
1: Uh I was gonna say we could save it to the end or we could like use this as our pivot point to get into the meat of the the story itself. Let's next. let's do
0: that. Let's let's pair our drinks with the meat of the story.
1: Um, Oh, oh, I like that. Thank Uh, you. I'm a little mad at you for how much I like that. Um, (laughs) One day, one day, like 150 years in the future, some grad student is going to do like a deep dive on us getting mad at each other every time we like make each other (laughs) laugh. Uh, And
0: yes. Yeah.
1: Anyway, and also at authors every time that they're brilliant. Um, Right, right. Uh, anyway, I am drinking, uh, something called, a drink called a Vesper. Have you heard of a Vesper, Michael? It sounds familiar, but tell me about it. Uh, so it is, as I understand, it is the original James Bond drink. Um, it's the drink that he drinks in the very first novel, which I can't remember, uh, Casino Royale, I think. Um, Ah, yes. I, I have not read Casino Royale but uh or it, or else it's in one of the other early ones um so uh, so everyone thinks of James Bond as drinking a martini right like that's the classic mm-hmm. uh one but in in the original uh original books he drinks a drink called a vesper um which is a variation on a martini so a Vesper has a bunch of gin, a small amount of vodka. And then an even smaller amount of um, a, a French fortified wine, uh, mm-hmm. quinine imbued drink called Lille Blanc. To uh, ah. and a person used to English, it, it would look like Lillet Blanc or Lillet Blanc. Mm-hmm. Um, and Lillet is a, a for, like I say, it's a fortified like white wine. It's it's as a wine goes, it's very strong. Uh, but it kind of replaces the vermouth, which is obviously another fortified wine. Um, so it sweeten things just a little bit. And then supposedly the vodka is in there to like smooth out the angry notes in the gin. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it is a very strong drink. Yeah, uh, Like it's, it's, you know, three and a half ounces and three of them are like your hard liquors. Um, but like the... <laughs> the way that all three of those ingredients sort of play together, it smooths everything out a great deal. So you, you know that you're drinking something strong, but you don't necessarily like, it doesn't feel like a, a pine tree is attacking the back of your throat. Um, <laughs> Good. And it is a, it's the only variation on a martini that I personally have ever enjoyed. Um, so I don't know if it was, you know, sort of a British leaning thing and, Neil Gaiman is is British in his origins, if that was in my yeah. mind or or what. But um, it's it's one of my favorite drinks. Uh, it's not to cool. be to be uh, taken lightly, but it's it's a uh, mm-hmm. very good if you're in the mood for a good a good you know stiff British style drink.
0: Nice.
1: What are you drinking, Michael? Um,
0: well, I kind of went uh, old fashioned ish. Um, but uh, I wanted it to have a little bit more of a, a meaty sort of flavor to it, so instead mm. of the sugar, I used honey, um, and uh, used brandy for the the liquor base. Okay. Um, and which which is a, a very nice syrupy, warm thing. Um, that's just mm, it's cozy. I like it. Did you um, uh,
1: use the bitters in it or?
0: Yes, yes, I use the 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 bitters that uh, that you gave me, nice. Ethan, that has been serving me so very well. Uh, <laughs> the the bitter truth um, own decanter, Jerry Thomas bitters.
1: Yes, that sounds. That actually sounds really lovely.
0: It is lovely. It is.
1: Did you uh, did you thin out the honey at all, or did you just uh...
0: just honey mixed in? Okay,
1: just incorporated. Not a ton real... of honey. Sure.
0: Um, if it were too much, it would be. Too much. Absolutely. Uh. <laughs> I just
1: I always worry about honey because I feel like it it sinks to the bottom of the glass like I have to mm-hmm. stir it real well to incorporate it, but I admire a good use of of honey. Mhm.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's good when it works well. Right. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Very nice.
0: Mhm.
1: Okay. So, uh do you want to look at this story to the best of our ability, as a story, as as just a yes. a, con, a discrete piece of fiction that we have picked up.
0: mm mm-hmm.
1: Um. Do you do, Did you want to start us off, or?
0: Yeah, sure. Um. Well, it it, it starts out with the, the the William Shakespeare, um, which t- is his name revealed. You hear? Oh, that's Will. a really good question. You hear um, um, his name Will is called in, like, the third panel after you've seen the date, June 23rd, 1593. Yeah. And they're talking about a play, so you could you could figure it out, especially if you've read the early ones. But then the first one who says Shakespeare is Morpheus' dream on uh, page two. Yeah, that's a really uh, good—yeah,
1: um, because uh, some of us on this podcast— and by that I perhaps mean hundred percent of us are obsessed enough with with Shakespeare that uh, you get to that first page <laughs> and it's uh, 1593 um, you hear Hamnet knowing that that's Shakespeare's son uh, mm-hmm. and then you hear him being called will and you see yep. a man in you know in the in the panel you see a man with a with sort of a high forehead and a, a male yep. pattern baldness and you know exactly what's happening mm-hmm. um, but it's it's, like
0: it's deliberately written so that the reveal doesn't come until page two yeah uh,
1: it's it's uh it's almost subliminal up to that point mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. like it's enough so that you know nerds like us can get it um but you might even get more of that uh wow factor if you didn't know that much going in yeah um yeah though i have to go ahead go ahead well, I, I wanted to to point out the um pages two and three the way those two pages are are put together mm. um not just not the the visuals necessarily but the conversation that's happening because you find out that they're going to perform this play and it's one that uh, Dream has uh, commissioned. Uh, but then you hear Richard Burbage, the the leading man, uh, kind of denigrating it a little bit. But you hear yeah. that after Shakespeare himself has says it's the best that I have written to this date, right. and then uh, Burbage says uh, this barbarous Farrago of fairy tale hodgepodge <laughs> is a mere crowd pleaser at best. Yes. Um, <laughs> so it, but like if you are a Shakespeare enthusiast, you do know *Midsummer Night's Dream* as one of the greatest, right? Um, and so you're you're immediately maybe um, inclined against Burbage's uh, opinion here, uh, sure. even if you if you weren't if this weren't the Sandman and you see the Sandman, you see Dream here being in favor of it already. Yeah. Um. I mean that that inclines you that way too.
1: I agree. Um. And the thing I would add to that is yeah. uh. It sets Burbage up as a particular type of character, and but mm-hmm. also gives us, as the audience, gives us this this very interesting interaction because um, what it does is it sets Burbage up as uh, someone who's very full of himself and full of what mm-hmm. he wants and what he thinks, um, and I'm I'm just I'm really resisting violating the the sort of thing that I set up just a couple minutes ago about not talking about other entries in the series immediately. Um, Cause it's a thing that, that recurs elsewhere in the series with Shakespeare as a character, but Burbage is talking out of his own perspective and his own opinions. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think Neil Gaiman uh, doesn't necessarily want us to say, Oh, we know better than this idiot he wants us to think about someone placed in a specific point in time uh, where the future is a mystery um how how and why they would think what they would think because um, mm-hmm. this this uh, this line really gives us uh, an idea of um, Burbage as a character and... The reason that he's denigrating uh, uh, Midsummer has exactly to do with his own interests, right? He yes. he he's a he's a tragedy, and that's how he conceives himself. And as a tragedy, and he conceives of tragedy as like the highest form of of uh, right. drama or of of poetry or posy, as they might say in in the era. Um, yeah, and uh, it's. It's very much of you... It, it, it's to talk about, like, narrow-mindedness, but of the of the reasons that narrow-mindedness exists, they're not necessarily mm-hmm. because you made a choice to be stupid. They're because you... Uh, uh, because of your situation and your self-interest, you mm-hmm. focus on certain things that maybe are not the focus of a character like Dream or a character like Will, who, you know, one of whom uh runs the the dreams and stories of of uh the multiverse and the other of whom is like <laughs> one of the greatest storytellers of all time
0: right uh, yeah well and it's interesting too that you point out that um, Burbage's opinion is based on his own self-interest because um, he doesn't see the value in this play because it's not for him or about him as yeah. opposed to dream. And the fairies that we're going to see, it's about them. And page after page, uh, these these fairies are like, hey, that's supposed to be you, or hey, that's <laughs> me. Um, like Peas Blossom is one of them. Hey, did they say Peas Blossom? That's my name. Um, right. And um, the, uh, the, the self-interest of it does make a difference. But right. it's also something that... Um, reveals maybe well it 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 reveals one of neil gaiman's famous or favorite uh sort of tropes that being um the reality of fairy tales and and stories yeah and how these things are real um well and
1: and even that is that idea of self-interest among the fairies or or self-recognition is then of course problematized because uh You know, at one point, like you have in the fairy commentators, um, which we have to have to talk for a second about uh, a play in which in in Midsummer Mm -hmm. itself there is, of course, a play and the characters in the play Midsummer comment on the play in Midsummer, and in this comic, which is like one of Neil Gaiman's like infuriatingly simple but Mm -hmm. brilliant. You know, things that he does. The people, you, you, you have a play in a play in a comic, um, and the people in the comic yep. are commenting on the play that the people, and then the people in the play are coming on. And now play. we're
0: in a podcast commenting on the comic, commenting on the play, commenting on the play. Exactly. So, really, we are the
1: highest form of a. Uh, uh, A comment here is what we're saying um tell
0: other people talk about the podcast
1: (laughs) (laughs) um but so you but you have this this like recurring thing with the fairies commenting on the action of the play and even they go through character arcs might be too big of a of a term but they certainly have their changes and they understand it in different ways um and uh, even though I'm just, I just read it literally half an hour before we recorded this. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm now not finding the exact page I want, but um, at one point, one of the other fairies tells Peas Blossom, "No, it isn't you." Uh, right. Like Pease Blossom says, "It's me," and they say, "No, it isn't you," uh, which links up with a few other lines throughout the piece, but uh, turns into this comment on the different levels of reality that are happening um Mm -hmm. and it's it's to say that no just because will stole your name for a character doesn't mean that character is you um but also the the idea that your name has been used to tell a certain type of truth but the truth is not that this is who you are this is just right you know the most obvious connection becomes the most like surface level thing uh about it like like or, or the most obvious connection from a, a a fairy in the story to a fairy in the play becomes the least interesting the least uh truthful thing about it
0: mm-hmm. yeah um that's on page 18 where that uh, oh thank you that happens um so of course it's kind of the culmination yeah, of like Do you hear that the... Pea's blossom that's meant to be me that is <laughs>
1: yeah it's a culmination of, of this conversation that's been going on between these, these fairy spectators.
0: Yeah. Where they're, they're kind of like, they're, they're getting it now. Um, yeah. There was a conversation about like, well, what is this? Is it, uh, Did they bring us here for, for a meal? Um, right. What, what's going on? And then, um, this, this one with the donkey's head, um, who has a comment. What's so funny about having a donkey's head? <laughs> right. Um uh is is the one who here says no it isn't you peas blossom be quiet because you know this fairy now is caught up in the story um and that's kind of the the progression that you see right in this the fairy is getting more and more into it they talk about it i think a lot more earlier on but then they get more invested um was there objections between um, um, the king and queen? Um, was that part of it? I can't remember.
1: Uh, I mean, the king and queen sort of, sort of, and Dream himself have sort of a separate dialogue, sure. I guess. Um,
0: kind of a higher dialogue.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, they're they're talking about more things that are going on um
1: yeah uh and and they're they're specifically interested because the um i guess the one bit of setup you wouldn't necessarily get out of just issue 19 and and no other context is the idea of who dream is Mm -hmm. um though i think if you're a close reader and you're paying attention you could you could extract it just from this story but um
0: yeah, the idea that well, this... he's got this relationship with the fairies. He's someone who's between the two. He's called the, one of the Endless in here by yeah. Puck, I think. Um... Yeah, but
1: but I think at least from just just this just issue nineteen, you could extract that he's you know the Lord of Dreams, like they call him right. Morpheus. Like they, they, you get there, uh, and so their conversation is about why he um, created this play, or or. Uh, whatever facilitated the creation of this play in the first place, right? Um, which yeah, is yeah, like... and
0: it, it he's he they they have a con- this conversation about truth near the end. Yes, um, that uh, Oberon uh, says, "We thank you, Shaper, but this diversion, although pleasant, is not true. Things never happened thus." Uh, And that's when Morpheus says, Oh, but it is true. Things need not have happened to be true. Tales and dreams are the shadow truth that will endure when mere facts are dust and ashes and forgot. Um, Which, you know, to broaden it out to the rest of the the series, I mean, he's one of the endless. So this idea of dream being endless and story being part of dream being endless. But uh, uh, it, it connects with these characters of the fairies too who are withdrawing from the mortal world more and more um they are separated into their own place and the
1: the implication from this one is specifically that they have withdrawn period Mm -hmm. and this this performance is is them sort of it's almost a uh only 90s kids will understand like it's a nostalgia trip for them yeah yes um yeah and uh the you know that, that scope, uh, the idea of scope and thinking in terms of vast scope is of course one of the um, very much recurring themes of of uh, mm-hmm. um, of the Sandman saga as a whole. Uh, but it is set up back on page two of this issue when uh, Dream and Will have their conversation. Um. Right when when they meet, as the as the troop is sort of rolling in and setting up, and uh, Dream says or Will says that that the place that they've chosen is a an odd place for um uh, for a theatrical performance, and Dream says odd. Wendell's Mound was a theater before your race came to this island, and mm-hmm. Will, of course, as a as a good. You know, 16th century Englishman would uh, here's the term race and is thinking in terms of Normans and Saxons, Um, right? So Will says before the Normans, and Dream says before the humans, Mm -hmm. Um, and like that's a that's a little like dialogue trick that Neil Gaiman plays a lot, both throughout the Sandman saga and like in his works in general,
0: all around. Yep, but Mm
1: -hmm. um, it is it is this idea of uh, of scope and perspective, and the attempt mm-hmm. to get you know to scramble upward and upward and get sort of the highest perspective possible. Um,
0: well, the, the highest perspective, but also the closest, which comes in when, um, like when Puck comes in and takes the place to play Puck, yeah, right? He he knocks Cowley out and and comes in and and plays himself and is within the play itself playing Puck,
1: right? Um,
0: it's it, 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 these these layers and, and things here when he comes in um uh it, it's page 15 where he does that he knocks him out and he says you played me well mortal but i have played me for time out of mind and i do robin goodfellow better than anyone right uh, and then from there on he's playing puck until the end and you don't find out or the other characters don't find out until page 22 what seven pages later right um yeah that um that's when Oberon says come my puck and leave this foolishness for now the time for our return draws near already Wendell opens up his gate which gives you the idea that okay um Oberon knew that puck was puck right uh Oberon recognized it but then um Puck himself says, what, leave, my lord, when there are mortals to confiscate and vex? Go, you all, your Puck will stay, the last hobgoblin in a dreary world. Ho, ho, ho. And that's when Shakespeare says, that's not Cowley, what's happening? Where are they going? What's happening? And they vanish, and Morpheus has his last line, goodbye, king and queen, farewell, fair folk, go in peace. And then you get this full page of Puck's monologue,
1: right? Uh, which
0: is Puck's monologue from the end of *Midsummer Night's Dream*. Yeah, um, just put into the mouth of the real Puck. So again, it's it's Puck being really close in. It's it's that perspective, but coming right back into the text.
1: Um, yeah, um, and if you're if you're following this as a through line, you could my my temptation at least would be to argue that. Puck still has that scope and that vision, but he also Uh has the audacity to locate himself within a very specific point. Um, So his actions are not motivated by, like, narrow-mindedness, like Burbage's comment, but by a very specific choice that he's made within this very broad scope. Mm -hmm. Um, Which, of course, is uh, almost the necessary corollary when you have stories of scope, you know, like this. Like Neil Gaiman said, he was called upon to, to write a, a whatever weekly or bi weekly uh, or monthly, anyway, a regularly occurring comic mm-hmm. book for the Sandman series. And he said he didn't know if he had enough stories in him. So he created a concept where any story idea he had could sort of be located within it. Um, yep. But when you have scope of that sort, you also do have to locate your characters and their decisions within a very specific context. Um, so that interplay is almost like part of the scope and not necessarily opposed to it. Um, right.
0: It, it makes it really, really complicated. And that's that's where, too, like it could be the sort of thing that comes across is just super simplistic, right? Because he just lifted Midsummer night's dream and had people watch it. Right. <laughs> Which if you put it that way, it sounds like a cop-out, but it's really not. Um, because he, he does so much more with that conversation that's around it and within it um, with multiple parties. You've got not just the, the, pers- uh, uh, the spectators, but you've got the actors uh, and you've got the all the people involved in the play itself having conversations on separate sides. Like the humans and the fairies, really don't interact except when Puck breaks the fourth wall, right? <laughs> right. Um, right. The in the opposite direction that he's supposed to, you know, Right. Um, breaking that <laughs> convention and coming in and, and taking the stage. Um, but that's that's Puck's character, right? The trickster,
1: absolutely. You know, but sort then sort of guy. Even to support that even more, uh, that page twenty-three that you mentioned a couple minutes mm-hmm. ago, um, he is mm-hmm. like the fairies have gone home. Yep. Um, if you if you interpolate the very next page, uh, presumably Will and his company are asleep. Um, yep. Pucks, so who's he talking to? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's facing us in most of those frames.
0: Exactly.
1: Um, I would also like to point out while we're here. Uh, so you got the splash page on page five where Wendell opens his mound and the the fairies come through, um, and of course that's where like the the credits occur uh, and the yep. title title and credits. Um, if you're paying close attention, you'll notice under a Midsummer Night's Dream, you have written by Neil Gaiman with uh-huh. additional material taken from the play by William Shakespeare. So yes. Gaiman has we, we either. Should,
0: we should at this point call out the artist too, Charles. Oh Ves, yes, I, because...
1: I, I, I want to do that, but I wanted to just mention. Yeah. Gaiman either has the audacity or the humility to credit Shakespeare yeah. as his co-writer,
0: and I suspect it's a dash of both. Yeah. Um, ah <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. But yes, That's Charles wonderful. Charles Vess um, Charles Vess also... does excellent excellent artwork in here um yeah and uh uh, from what i understand about neil gaiman's style of writing the comics he would include like little sketches um of like kind of what he thought it would look like sure um but really simplistic and then the artist had to more or less interpret that um and put it together and so charles vess has done just a wonderful job you would not be able to um picture this comic without him and it's so iconic yeah. in fact um on page six uh on the top right you have uh, a panel of puck yeah um talking here about dream um and that that image of puck i saw that recreated and reused on a an, a comic book issue that was released just last week oh wow um That's awesome. uh, that like it's it's something like from um characters from sandman or something i didn't i didn't wind up buying it but um like i mean this is this is puck this is this is what he looks like well charles Charles best created that picture
1: charles viss uh possibly um to neil gaiman fans most well known for uh the original version of stardust was functionally like Mm. an illustrated novel um Mm -hmm. that i i forget why they created it that way other than that it was super cool but like um a lot of people who read stardust when it was first published like can't conceive of that story without charles vess's illustrations and um Gaiman works with a variety of artists throughout the sandman series but like charles vess often seems to come in on like some of the most iconic ones um mm-hmm. And I, I, as I understand it, you're right about Gaiman, you know, having a very specific vision and uh, and g- going to the point of, like, sketching certain things. But he's also pretty well known, um, as I understand it, for, uh, like, trying to work with his artists and say, like, what's something that you have always wanted to draw or what's something you feel like you excel at drawing. um. And trying to sort of like highlight that as well. Um, so that's interesting. Uh, yeah. Well, we're on Wendell's Mound also, um, I think, mm-hmm. I don't want to assert too much like academically, but Wendell's Mound is a real place. And um, if you're on page five, the, the panel in the upper left, the very first one before Wendell opens his gate, um, that's, more or less how this place looks it's it's uh sometimes known as the long man um mm-hmm. in uh and it's in sussex where where they say at one point that they're uh, performing this play um yep. and it's one of not it, it's certainly not the only one in sussex or in that that uh rough area of um england where they have these very, there are these very mysterious um, uh, illustrations uh, carved into the sides of hills, and I, yeah, if I were a good podcaster, I would have done literally any research knowing I wanted to mention this, <laughs> um, but I don't know if they use like salt or or chalk of some kind. Um, but there's another. Very famous one uh that's an yeah. illustration of a pony. I'm trying to see if I can find it here quick. Uh GK Chesterton in um might even be in uh Orthodoxy. Um might not be in an Ortho anyway, uh, Chesterton talks about this this uh Pony specifically, which is very similar. Like it's, it's something that's carved onto the side of a hill and an extremely broad scope for something created 4,000 years ago or more. Um, Right. And Chesterton talks about uh, these, um, uh, these carvings as, uh, you know, mysterious, like it to him was like a symbol of, um, a symbol of like the mystery of the past and, uh, the idea that, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, they're almost, I I don't, I don't think he says this exactly this way, but almost an implication that there were great civilizations and people with great thoughts that have completely dissolved in the mists of history. Um, and left behind sort of these, these, uh, uh, you know, very, these, what are clear communications, um, mm-hmm. but very mysterious ones as well. Yep. Um, it, uh, the, the closest sense I've gotten to that personally, uh, is when we were, when my wife and I got to go to Ireland, um,
0: but did you go to Ireland?
1: Yeah, I know. I may have mentioned it once or twice, uh, <laughs> Thank you for doing that joke because I was trying to figure out like how best to, to do that joke this time, and you just uh, uh, tossed that ball up I, for me. I to...
0: opened the hail door for you. Yeah, thank you.
1: Um, but in in West Ireland, there's an area called the Burren, which is um, sort of a. I think the whole area might be considered like a cultural heritage site by the by the UN, hmm. um, and we got to see a uh there's a term for it anyway it was an ancient monument um that's at least been it's a raw a stone monument that's been dated to at least like 3000 bc at a minimum um there's a much more famous one uh called Newgrange that we did not get to see but we got to see this one and it was just two slabs of stone with a third like sort of at an angle to each other with a third slab of stone on top, like the most simplistic house of cards that you, you know, could ever build out of three cards. But they were these giant, you know, multiple ton slabs of stone. And they rose out of this, like this barren countryside. And just like standing in front of that, the, the idea that, someone 5000 years ago had put these here intentionally and it was clearly intentionally as simple uh-huh. as it was um gave you the sense of like connection but also just like it was like hearing a voice in a fog um sure. you know that that something was out there something was being communicated but you couldn't necessarily get back to it um mm-hmm. And I say all this because I know that Neil Gaiman has said that he's very influenced by G.K. Chesterton um, in some ways. So, uh, and and maybe that's not what the direct connection is here, Um, but for him to use one of these, you know, mysterious uh, uh, monuments from the ancient world um, Mm -hmm. feels very, not exclusively, but it feels very Chestertonian. Um. It, it feels like like something also that Chesterton himself would have would have encountered that in a story and maybe said uh, yes very good uh huh uh um,
0: huh yeah well and it's it's exactly in Neil Gaiman's character to take those sorts of things and say well fairies yeah um,
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's cuz it's yeah it is one of those very s- almost s- almost simplistic seeming fantasy devices to just say well this thing's there what if it Moved and if it moved, it would obviously mm-hmm. open a portal to fairy. Like, it's right, it's so close to the real world and so like fantastic and mysterious at the same time.
0: Well, that's that's something I mean, you think of like American gods, and mm-hmm. um, oh, what else? Uh, there was something else I was thinking of that Neil Gaiman has done where it's it, it seems just so utterly simplistic to do that, yeah, which is why I think in a lot of ways nobody has done that right but neil gaiman did right <laughs> and and we're we're the better for it um that that he's put these things out there and yeah. kind of shown so, i i i i don't i haven't done the the work to look at neil gaiman's writing before sandman versus his writing after sandman sure and like what his what it looked like how it changed or or what have you but um i i suspect that the uh the work of having to put this out monthly you know and um you know having to get these story ideas out there um encouraged him in something that i think he was probably already strong at uh of just saying well my imagination is taking me here so that's what i'm gonna do right um he he's very good at showing just like there's nothing wrong with your imagination. Let it do what it wants to do. Um,
1: right. Um, yeah, uh, though also another, while we're talking about sort of how how good he is at creating fantastic things out of like elements that do exist in the real world. Um, mm-hmm. The use of Shakespeare, like Shakespearean biography in this story, um, all by itself is probably something we could do an entire podcast on oh um, yeah, definitely between uh, the and and what I alluded to earlier about there being story arcs his son Shakespeare's son Hamnet is like mm-hmm. if I was going to argue that there is an actual character arc in this piece he's, he's who I would argue about um, sure but Gaiman has written this in such a way that All of the facts and the references in this story, if you know Shakespeare's biography, if you've read one or, as the nerdiest of us have, multiple biographies of Shakespeare, um, nothing in the story really contradicts any of that. Um, To the point that on the very last page, as Shakespeare is kind of, uh, yet again, dismissing Hamnet's... uh, attempts to bond with him, Um, Shakespeare Mm -hmm. says, you must practice your handwriting. Perhaps you could write a letter to your mother or to Judith. Um, Uh And only reference to Judith Shakespeare in, in this whole story, who of course was uh, Shakespeare's oldest, I believe oldest child, Um, certainly a daughter who would have been older than Hamnet. So it's just like, if you're a, a Shakespeare, you know, scholar or Shakespeare nerd, and you're just like, really trolling this text for mistakes Mm -hmm. because of course the only thing you want from a comic book where shakespeare plays midsummer night's dream for the actual fairy court is historical accuracy um right (laughs) but as much as i make that joke if that's what you wanted you'd get it um Uh the the wildest you're
0: not gonna find it find any inaccuracies in here yeah
1: the 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 stretchiest thing is the idea that hamnet came along with them um on their tour which i don't think there's probably any support for but i doubt that. but you could
0: argue that it's there and you have a hard time arguing that he would never have
1: exactly yeah um so yeah that's that's just like just i don't know something about that just is awe-inspiring to me
0: yeah um, um yeah no i i appreciate that and like it the, it ends with just a text panel um that you know you might see at the end of a, a biopic sort of thing too right hamnet di- hamnet shakespeare died in 1596 aged 11 so three years after this which that itself i don't think it has necessarily any bearing on the story itself well it just adds some richness to it 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 um, is a,
1: yet another historically accurate, um, right? You know, detail to include, but and that's because you're right. This is very biopic uh, tropes going on here, and mm-hmm. um, I assume that's intentional to sort of highlight the fact that yeah, this wasn't a plot one. This was just a a right. biography one. Um, but, but then
0: it's immediately followed by Robin Goodfellow's present whereabouts are unknown.
1: Absolutely. And also, um, uh, uh, the the thing I've always taken from this, and and uh, um, I, I, I'm interested in in whether you got here at all or not. Uh, any anyone who's read a basic biography of Shakespeare knows that Hamnet died in 1596. Um, yep. The thing I took from this is: did he die, or did he just go join? You know, did he be- the fairies? Yeah, did he become uh-huh. to quote Midsummer Night's Dream, uh you know, Titania's little Indian boy? Um mm-hmm. which is which- for someone in the twenty first century an uncomfortable phrasing, but that's like he the small Indian boy is like the MacGuffin of of uh yeah. Titania and Oberon's uh um feud. And you know, does does are we implying here that that shakespeare lost his child not to death but to the fairies
0: right and doesn't she say something about how cute hamnet is oh in multiple yes, yeah areas. multiple times yeah yeah several times so i mean like it's it's
1: completely and then the last three things that hamnet says that shakespeare ignores are how beautiful this lady was and how nice she was to him yeah like mm-hmm. if he hadn't if he hadn't You know, shush his son. You get the impression that uh, maybe the next thing the son would say is, "And she told me I could, I could come and live with her. Isn't that nice, Dad? Like, what do you think about that? You know, yeah. This is obviously somewhat off the page, but I don't think it's that far off the page.
0: No, I it's it's heavily implied anyway, and it's it's just ambiguous enough that you can have it both ways.
1: Yeah, Um, and to one, you know. If if you do if you assume that Gaiman wrote that in intentionally, um, mm-hmm. an accusation he could then get accused of is sort of uh, the word maudlin comes up, if not the word glib. <laughs> you know the idea that like oh you're reaching back into actual history to pull your fantasy, you know, crap mm-hmm. out of a real tragedy that happened to a real man. Um, but the if. If you interpret it this way, if you interpret it that Hamnet was stolen in in a direct or indirect way for by uh, Titania, like because the themes of the story have wrapped the fairy court up with almost the devil's bargain that Shakespeare makes, um, mm-hmm. you could you could say like if you if you want to sort of strip the magic out of it, it's a it's a symbol for um you know shakespeare probably wasn't a great father and shakespeare was so racked with guilt that he wrote uh the play hamlet excuse me hamlet three different mm-hmm. times um mm-hmm. including you know culminating in an unperformable five hour long um magnum <laughs> opus um uh-huh. you know like whether whether uh whether the neglect led to his death or his kidnapping by the fairies, it's, it's almost like the, the themes are the same. And once you it's, it's, it's yet again, it's another one of those things that's true, even if it's not true.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Which um, like not only did um, dream say that to Oberon, but uh, puck said that at, like when it was, it when bottom got his head changed he just laughs hysterically and oh there page 13 this is magnificent and it is true it never happened yet it is still true what magic art is this exactly which i mean right there story is magic um yeah yeah.
1: and that's Um, not even you know to tie in some of like there are fairy tales some of the stories about changelings and and um yeah children kidnapped by fairies are really easy to analyze as coping mechanisms for like child <laughs> death, not to get too yep. dark right here at the end. Um, so again, it's, it's Neil Gaiman, not necessarily, it, it's him using some of the tropes that exist at the time that he's, he's setting his story in.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: Um, um, yeah.
0: But, I I don't know if you have more specifically to talk about here. I had one more um, question that I wanted to ask. Uh, I have something else.
1: Only the brief comment about Robin Goodfellow getting away. But we can say yes, yes, yes. yes. Go ahead. Um, Well, it's that if there if there is something in this issue that affects the plot, um, Mm -hmm. it's the switch that Robin Goodfellow does. This this. you know, very small heist that he does. um, That as I, it's been a few years since I reread, you know, this series for probably the fourth time or whatever. Um, As I remember, Robin Goodfellow doesn't show up for another like five to six more volumes. Um, But then he becomes a very key element of the climax of the series. Which, for context, this is volume three. The climax is in volume nine. Um, yep. <laughs> so, that's... And and that's really all I wanted to say as far as, like, there is one plot thing that this story does. And you could have done it in another story, but Damon sure. chose to do it here. And, again, talking about scope, the the scope of the series is such that another... Forty-five, fifty issues go by until, if you don't remember the the action of this issue, you might be at least slightly confused about what's going on. Um, yeah, very true. And that's that's uh, you know you know me I'm nothing if not pedantic, and uh, that's to pedantically drive home the point that there's one exception to the idea that the plot of this story doesn't matter to the series as a whole. Yeah. So, uh. That yeah, that's really all I all I have left to say that wouldn't take us, sure. you know, on another entire podcast
0: episode. Right. Um and to to avoid that I wanna ask <laughs> this, this last question, but I want yes. you to keep the answer very, very brief. So rein it in. Um, uh no promises, but go on. Can you give us just the briefest details on the controversy over the award that this oh, story won?
1: Yeah. Um, that is the one thing I would have texted you later tonight and been like, I forgot to say. Um, yep. <laughs> so thank you. Um, You're welcome. It's what I'm yes. here for. So this story was nominated for the World Fantasy Award for like whatever year that it came out 1990. Um, I assume the award ceremony would have been in 91 but somewhere in there. Um, And so as I understand it, again, something I could have researched if I was a good podcast host or guest. Um, As I understand it, the world fantasy award category was for like best short story and never before had a, a, a comic book of any kind of graphic story been nominated for that award um but that year this exact issue of sandman was so popular and i don't know how the nomination processes work but it got itself nominated and won in that category um Mm -hmm. but there was basically a big controversy um because basically, no one had ever said before that you couldn't nominate a comic book, but no one had said before that you could, and those were the two sides of the controversy. Basically, um, yep. so as I understand it, the World Fantasy Award they they clarified uh, their their definitions after that um, to mm-hmm. not include graphic graphic novels or graphic. Uh, stories um Mm -hmm. so that's in a nutshell and you know i'm sure there's a lot more detail i could go into but in a nutshell that's that's the uh uh the story there the controversy there and in there's a famous speech that neil gaiman gave years ago as like a commencement address and i want to say it was new york university for the arts um that has since been made into like a little book or whatever. But he has some comment in there about, like... It's something about you should always try things or try the unexpected. Um, It was something about, like, try to do the impossible, because the impossible is only, like, something no one's done yet, and therefore they haven't made up rules to prevent you from doing it. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm butchering this in the paraphrase, but, like... To me, it was A, very cool and smart, and B, a very clear reference to this exact thing, that he was the only person who got to win this award for having written a graphic novel. (laughs) Right. Um, Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe the editor of this podcast will link to that speech in the the stuff, and then you can read it for yourself without my my butchering of it, but that will depend (laughs) on... how lazy the the editor of this podcast is
0: well we'll have to wait and see what the editor of this podcast decides to do yep
1: oh good
0: (laughs) all right i think that's gonna conclude uh our discussion of uh a midsummer night's dream by neil gaiman with additional material by william shakespeare (laughs) uh, illustrated by charles vest um but uh you can dive back into uh our regular episodes that are uh, forthcoming read along uh give us your contact on tapestryradio.org go to the contact section or find us on twitter at room with scotch or in the tapestry radio tap house on facebook that's our facebook group you can request to join and we'll let you in unless you are puck but uh you'll find a way in anyway um uh, we will do your homework. We don't promise to do it well, but we condone plagiarism because it's funny and look what uh, Neil Gaiman managed to do with it, except it's all public
1: domain, so it's fine. Um,
0: <laughs> uh, go ahead uh, yeah. onto our website. Don't, don't start or another org. fight go with ahead. Neil Gaiman. Yeah, right. <laughs> I've
1: barely gotten over my trauma from accidentally starting the last one. <laughs> that, and by fight, I mean me saying something, Neil Gaiman never hearing it, and me being ashamed forever.
0: Anyway, go on. <laughs> that's, that's, that's real. <laughs> um, but go on to uh, org slash scotchcast. You can fill out the uh, homework form there. Um, if you like this podcast, check out the other shows on the Tapster Radio Network, like Intermission, the backstage drama podcast. Us Play Fiasco, the uh, Fiasco RPG improv podcast. And Pokemon Rollout, the Pokemon Tabletop United actual play RPG podcast. And... Uh, Freddie goes to a podcast, the, yes. uh, uh Freddie, the pig series book discussion podcast, which uh, rate and review us and all these podcasts on Apple podcasts or wherever you get them. Uh, and that'll help other people find it
1: because the editor of this podcast is bad and lazy. We should emphasize Freddie goes to a podcast because this is the first time that will have been mentioned in our, uh, true. feed, um, and it's a. It's Besides
0: just... the, the release of, of the first episode on the feed, yeah. Other than the but... first
1: entire episode being in the feed, this will be the first mention of it. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a, right. uh, If you like the like whole book discussion thing that we do here, uh, it seems like a natural fit. Um,
0: right, and right. That's... and that one's even a little bit more structured than what we do here.
1: Yeah, you could probably like not even have to read the thing. Um, Yeah, because Josiah beautifully summarizes it at the beginning. It's true. Uh, But also, you should read the thing, because these books are delightful.
0: They are. Yeah, they are. Um, So, Ethan, where can they find you on the
1: interwebs? I am at Bjartlet. My account has not been banned, but I do not really ever post on it. Um, That's at B-J-A-R-T-L-E-T-T. If you do tweet at me, I probably will see you, because I, I... uh check it periodically thinking that perhaps if i have not posted someone else will at Mm -hmm. me which hasn't worked so far but hope springs eternal
0: (laughs) right uh i am on twitter and technically instagram at m-g-l-i-l-i-e-n-t-h-a-l uh kind of same thing tweet at me and i'll see it i might respond um i'm not terribly active on social media but there i am Um, So, yes, uh, until next time, gentle listener, just remember it's our party and we'll cry if I'm going to say Morpheus makes
1: us. He probably will, too. Uh,
0: He probably will. Yeah. So (laughs) bye.
1: Bye.